Our scripture lesson for this morning comes to us from 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 1 through 16. Listen now to what the Spirit is saying to the church. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life like the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid. He got up and fled for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. He left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a solitary broom tree. He asked that he might die. It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my ancestors. Then he laid down under the broom tree and fell asleep. Suddenly, an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked, and there at his head was a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. He ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came a second time, touched him, and said, Get up and eat, otherwise the journey will be too much for you. He got up and ate and drank, then went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. At that place he came to a cave and spent the night there. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, What are you doing here, Elijah? He answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. He said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now there was a great wind, so strong that it was splitting mountains and breaking rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake, and after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire, a sound of sheer silence. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Then there came a voice that said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. Then the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael as king over Aram. And you shall anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And you shall anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat of Abel-Maloh, as prophet in your place. This is the word of the Lord. We all have stories that define our lives. We tell these stories to make sense of who we are. Here's one of my stories. When I was in the sixth grade, my family visited the Delaware Water Gap. It's this beautiful um, stretch of land in between New Jersey and Pennsylvania that the Delaware River has carved out. 
And the infamous Appalachian Trail runs through this area. And on this visit, I got my very first book on the Appalachian Trail. I was absolutely captivated from that time forth by backpacking. I knew then that someday I would hike the whole Appalachian Trail. This became my biggest dream. And for the next decade, I read and learned and hiked and dreamt of the day that I would claim that elusive accomplishment of Appalachian Trail through Hiker. During my senior year of college, my three best friends and I decided it was now or never. We bought plane tickets, spent the rest of the year selecting our gear and getting ready, and then took off for Mount Katahdin, Maine to hike to Springer Mountain, Georgia. Four and a half months later, one fist fight, approximately 17,000 packets of ramen noodles, and a lot of weird experiences, we emerged at Springer Mountain. It was one of the hardest things, if not the hardest thing I have ever done, and it became my defining story. I thought this story was pretty impressive, and I thought that everybody else should think this was pretty impressive too. So for a while, I kind of developed this habit where I just casually drop in how impressive my story was in about just about every conversation I had. So it goes something like this. Somebody would say, Nate, did you see the Steelers game last night? I sure did, I'd respond. The defense was pitiful, but at least the good people of Pittsburgh can take solace in the fact that I walked from Maine to Georgia on the Appalachian Trail. <laughs> Thankfully, I don't do that with my story now. Now I just brag about it in sermon illustrations. <laughs> Anyways, I thought this story was very impressive. The problem was that the story that I was actually living stalled in a big way. After hiking the AT, I moved to a city where I did not want to live to follow a girl who would soon break up with me where I would get stuck in a job that I really wasn't that good at. And I struggled. I struggled to make friends, and I struggled desperately to define myself. I didn't think the story I was living was that impressive. I didn't think that the story of mediocre assistant youth director who just got his heart ripped out and spends most of his time wishing he was somewhere else was all that impressive. I missed my old story, the story of thru-hiker Nate. I was seriously lost and stayed lost for well over a year. At a low point, a friend said to me, he said, Nate, if you have absolutely no idea where you are, go back to the last place where you knew who you were. I assembled some of my hiking buddies, left my job, bought a plane ticket to California, and settled into a thousand mile hike on the Pacific Crest Trail. I got back into a familiar story. And then, about 700 miles into this hike, I found myself high on a desert ridge, hiking by moonlight, and wrestling with the question, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? This is the question that God asked Elijah in this morning's scripture lesson. What are you doing here, Elijah? Let's refresh how Elijah got to this point. Elijah has been through the ringer. He's called to be a prophet and to speak out against the shady dealings of Ahab, the king of Israel. Ahab has married Jezebel, the daughter of a neighboring king. This Jezebel happens to worship the god Baal, 
not the Lord God of the Israelites. And she doesn't want to just worship Baal in private. No, she wants all of Israel to worship Baal too. Ahab is on board with this plan, and the Lord God is not having it. In case you were wondering how bad of a character this Ahab guy was, chapter 16 of 1 Kings tells us that Ahab did more to provoke the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than had all of the kings of Israel before him. And that's saying something, given the track record of Israelite kings. Anyways, our main man, Elijah, starts speaking out against Ahab and Jezebel. He predicts a drought against Israel because of Ahab's actions, which does not leave him the most popular prophet in town. He then gets sent by God to speak against Baal in the heart of enemy territory. You would think at this point that Elijah would be able to then take his two weeks paid vacation and go take a Mediterranean cruise. But no, God sends him right back to meet Ahab, the very man who wants him dead. It culminates in the big showdown, the Lord God versus Baal. Ahab and Elijah decide to put this thing to a test and see who the real God is. And rest assured, if the Lord God does not show up, Elijah is a dead man. Luckily for Elijah, God shows up in dramatic form. God leaves no doubt who the real God is. As a victory lap, Elijah has the prophets of Baal slaughtered, like you do when you win a bet, and uh, it doesn't go so well for him. Jezebel is furious. She wants Elijah as dead as the prophets Elijah has just had slaughtered. Now, we could spend a whole lot of time digging into the ethics of slaughtering your enemies, but let's leave that one for a rainy day. Anyways, Elijah runs from Jezebel for his life. Worn out and depressed, with nowhere else to run, Elijah needs to go back, or decides he needs to go back to an old story, an ancient story, a story that has defined Israel. It's a story he knows. It's a story that brings him comfort. It's a story where God has worked in the past, and Elijah wants to see if God will show up there again. Here's the story Elijah enters. He retraces the Israelites' ancient journey in reverse. It's like he's Moses on rewind. He leaves the promised land, goes back through the wilderness, and goes to the mountain of God. Mind you, this isn't just any mountain that Elijah runs to. Elijah goes to the mountain. He knows that God has showed up on Mount Horeb before. You know that place where uh, Moses got the Ten Commandments from? That's the mountain. Think about that for a second. In a moment of desperation, when Elijah thinks that all is lost, that everything that was promised is gone, when he feels that everything is falling apart, he goes back to a familiar story. Elijah camps out there to see if God will tell the story again. You've probably heard this part of the story before. This part where there was a great wind, so strong that it split the mountains apart and broke rocks and pieces before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind, and, the, and there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake, and then there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire, and then the sound of sheer silence. 
There's been a long temptation to reduce this story to a pithy suggestion that if we all carved out a little bit of quiet time with God, we would hear God's still small voice. I think that suggestion, while not unimportant, misses the point. It's the next part, I think, that the story really hinges on. It's the question, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? Elijah is expecting God to be in the pyrotechnics in the same way God was with Moses. Elijah is expecting God to tell the same story. Elijah thinks he knows how God will act and how the story will go. He thinks the story of God is defined and that he can take his place in that defined story. But this is not what happens. God does not meet Elijah in the way Elijah expects. God will not be boxed in. God will not be controlled. God will not be tamed or safe or restricted to place or custom or tradition or story, even as we acknowledge that place and custom and tradition and stories are important. God will be who God will be. So what do we do with all of this? Here's the deal. I think that when life gets difficult, going back to a familiar story is not a bad place to start. In fact, I think it's a great place to start. I think that's one of the reasons that we keep coming back to church week after week after week. We come back here because we have a wonderful story that is familiar and important and comforting. We come back here because we know God has shown up here in the past, and we hope that we will see God here again. But if Elijah's encounter with God tells us nothing else, it's this. Those seeking God and a familiar story should be prepared to have a question asked of them. What are you doing here? Are we here because we want a climate-controlled, predictable God experience? Or are we, as Elijah puts it, truly zealous for the Lord? Because the kicker is, if we are truly zealous for the Lord, then we had better be prepared for God to show up in new ways different from the ones we expected. We had better be open to the possibility that might, God might send us back out on a new and difficult mission. God might ask us to go and raise up new prophets to carry out God's work. That is what happened to Elijah, after all. What are you doing here? Now, I've never had to risk anything like Elijah, but when I found myself high up on that desert mountaintop that night, hiking by moonlight, I had a choice to make. You see, I was, uh, I was supposed to get off the trail in a few weeks and fly to Princeton, New Jersey to start seminary. But I was scared to leave a story I knew for one that I wasn't sure would go so well. I was scared to fail again. I was seriously contemplating walking past my plane ticket to stay in a familiar and predictable story and not go to seminary at all. As I hiked under the moonlight telling God all the reasons why I shouldn't go to seminary, something shifted. I got one of those rare, rare feelings of certainty. I had this profound sense that while I would be loved no matter what I did, I needed to begin a new story. I finished my trek and went to seminary a few weeks later. And that next chapter turned out to be a story, a new story that I absolutely loved, 
full of wonderful people and wonderful experiences that I never could have predicted. What are you doing here? Maybe your story is one of past accomplishments or past failures. Maybe it's a relationship that fell apart or an old hurt or something that has defined you for too long. Maybe you have a story that has been told long enough. Maybe it's time that you let God take you on a new story. I think the time is ripe too for our church to stop, to take stock and ask itself, what are we doing here? As we prepare for a new senior pastor in our next chapter, it's not a bad thing to retell some of our favorite stories. It's a great place to start. But God's story doesn't stop. It didn't stop in 1928 with a new sanctuary, and it didn't stop with Reverend Redhead or Reverend Mullen or Reverend Bats. It has never been defined by leadership, by worship times, by aesthetics, or by programming. God is still on the move, and there might be a new story that just needs to be told. There's a new mission out there for us with new people and new possibilities that we can't imagine or control. What story is God calling this church to next? What are you doing here? What are we doing here? May we ask the questions, and may we be open to the next story God has for us. Amen.